this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an award-winning American author of several books of fiction, memoir and poetry. He's also the co-creator of Enter Text, a series of large-scale immersive literary events and an editor at the literary magazine The Offing. His play, At Sundown, premiered at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and his short film, Taking Shape, screened on HBO. His fifth book, Open Throat, is a strange and stunning novel about a lonely queer mountain lion trying to survive in drought-stricken Los Angeles. Henry Hoke, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's just wonderful. You're only in this country for a couple of days. We've managed to lure you into our studio to talk to us not only about this absolutely extraordinary book, which has been hailed as an instant cult classic and a bloody masterpiece, which I absolutely agree with, but also about your other work and your life, because it looks completely fascinating. <laughs> now, you grew up in Virginia. Tell us more. Yeah, I grew up in um, Charlottesville, Virginia, and then moved to New York and went to school there and found my way to Los Angeles to focus on writing after working in film and doing theater and things of that stripe. And really, I found Los Angeles very strange and beautiful and complicated. I had a great community there from the school CalArts, especially where art and performance and writing intersected. Right. And so that's what your company, Entertext, does. Tell us more about that. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was very much influenced by by theater I'd seen, especially theater I'd seen from London. I mean, the, the company Punch Trunk was very important to me and the encounters I'd had with their work. And I thought about the dynamic of all the writers I knew who were not just writers for the page. They were people who were interested in performance art and engaging with audiences in a new way. My um, co-director, Marco Franco Di Domenico, and I would find these Places from warehouses to we did something at the Neutra House to various indoor-outdoor spaces. We did a museum at one point that then closed. Just these very fleeting, strange, but open Los Angeles spaces. And we'd install writers and their work throughout and let audiences sort of find their way through and encounter writers, encounter structural installations of their work, one-on-one encounters, things like that. And we built a show from there. How do you make an installation of a writer's work? It really varied based on the writer, and it was something we would collaborate with each writer to think about what it would look like. At one point, a writer had an amazing piece that she had letterpress stamped on different parts of her body and would reveal it to an audience of one person at a time by just you know, pulling back a sleeve, a collar, turning in different positions. So they formed a dance, two people, the viewer and the, the writer, showing this work. That's one way. It was, that's one of my favorite ways that someone took the prompt and ran with it. It sounds absolutely extraordinary. Tell me how you came to the arts, because you've mentioned theatre and and writing, but what was was first for you? I mean, I suppose that I did dance when I was very young. I loved just being lost under lights and in front of people. (laughs) And uh, so performance was always key to what I do. But then finding that impulse to sort of go in the cave and just be a writer happened definitely early, but very much during adolescence to think like, okay, well, a space I can inhabit and not feel overwhelmed or preyed upon <laughs> or scared was a place of, of writing and of, of creating alternate alternate takes on my life and my social groups and all kinds of things I found writing and would write whole imaginative novels of my 
friends <laughs> and very um, soap opera <laughs> about my social group in, like, let's say, middle school. And that really was where I, I just found writing as, as a safe haven. And then on to film because people started having video cameras and it was a fun way to transform my ideas. But I think really books were always what I loved. My, my parents were very big readers and filled my life with books. And so I think I always knew I'd end up creating books as my main focus. You keep mentioning the phrase safe space. And I wondered, what did you need safety from? I mean, I think we all need safety. <laughs> I hope we, we all can find it. I think for me, it was, I mean, being a young queer person and struggling with gender, I think, and, and really a lot of things that I, I ended up very much exercising and finding a voice for in this novel, in Open Throat, about just feeling strange in a body and feeling unsure about how to perform in the world. That was a big part of growing up. I mean, I talked about it a lot in my in my memoir, Sticker, about gender, about signifiers of gender, especially in a, in a place with just sort of a complicated dynamic in history, like my town in Virginia. Mm. Film, your short film, Taking Shape, was actually on HBO, as I, as I mentioned. Tell me about that production. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that, that was when I was, it was a very young moment. I did it in a, in a summer program at NYU um, when I was a teenager. And it was just, a, it was a film about a reclusive woman making jello sculptures that was the film um, but uh, yeah they had a great program on hbo where they screened like student films and young films by young people and i was just scouted to screen that it was yeah it was a very like brief brush with i guess publication or presentation when i was young and it was nice and it, the money they paid me i could spend a little money when i went to college in new york <laughs> And your play at Sundown? I did a, a really exciting collaboration with a large group of friends at CalArts, and we took it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And that was a play that was generated from exploring the phenomenon of sundowning, where early-onset dementia symptom, where people start to just have symptoms of dementia when the sun is setting. And so it was really about like young people exploring the possibilities of the end of their life at the beginning of their life, in a way, and sort of honoring a lot of people from both the producer to other people to some of our um, financiers, their experiences with their own parents or grandparents who'd, who'd experienced that phenomenon. And we were sort of honoring and collaging their their memories and encounters with, with this phenomenon into a, um, you know, a movement and archival piece. That was, it was, it was a really exciting piece to work on because it, it, it combined device theater and research and the personal into something very electric. It was it was a great experience to be at Edinburgh with that. So, I mean, you're clearly hugely talented across a, a great spectrum of the arts. And so I wonder, I mean, a lot of the things you're talking about are very much forward-facing. As you say, you love the lights, you love the being out there. But writing is such an internal process. And I wonder how you switch into that. I think that I get, I feel extroverted in those moments, but then I need a lot of restorative time and space and to connect to open throat, to like, to go into the cave, to go somewhere very quiet and private and to take everything I've gotten from working with a lot of other artists and being out in the world and sort of find a way to, to process and collage it into something that's very personal and private in text form, in a book form. Mm. And I think I just I need a lot of restorative time after all this. Yeah. Uh, in, in 2016, you published something called The Book of Endless Sleepovers. Tell us more about that. The Book of Endless Sleepovers was the first like compilation of everything I'd worked on at, at CalArts, where CalArts is a wonderful MFA because it doesn't track you into fiction or poetry or playwriting. And I, I really didn't know which of those things I would, I would be excited about, except I knew I sort of wanted to create books. I wanted to see if that could work. <laughs> and so in, in creating Book of the Sleepovers, I was sort of creating a threaded 
memoir out of hybrid pieces, out of flash fiction and poetry and these sort of multi-genre memoir pieces I was doing where I would take the form of like a news story or ghost story, but it would be just one memoiristic story about like an early trauma in my life. But I would have maybe 10 different formal expressions of it and they would collage together. And so that book was a way to collage all of those things into, I'd say, you know, 12 or 13 pieces that form a a sort of portrait of my early life, I would say. Absolutely fascinating. Now, Genevieve's was an award-winning story collection. Yeah, I won a a book prize from from a wonderful independent press that's just now being archived by Calamari Press after the passing of the publisher of that press. So there'll be a way to access all of their books, Subito Press. And yeah, that happened very simultaneously with the Book of the Sleepovers is that they just called me. I think they tweeted at me or something, something very like informal to say, oh, you know, we love this collection. We'd love to publish it. And Genevieve's was, if you look at it, it's, it's, I think of it as a short story collection. It's all fiction, you know, but it's these incredibly formally different pieces. There's a play inside of it that forms one of the short stories. So that was really, those two books are where I was saying, okay, you know, I'm not going to need to cohese what I do into only one form. I'm going to create a space where those forms can coexist. And that was important to my, those early books. Yeah. Mm. And after that came The Groundhog Forever. <laughs> that was my first novel. I was like, okay, I, I will sustain a whole story for a short novel, but a, a consistent story. Of, it's about two film students, so it was very drawing from my life at NYU. And the first week I moved to New York to go to film school was September 11th. So I was in lower Manhattan when the Twin Towers were attacked and came down and so that book is a way for me to process that day and an incredibly and, and explore the memories of all my friends and my group that we all bonded over getting through that day together and really meeting because we were all freshmen, you know, and we were all wanting to create images and make stories. But we were caught up in this something that was so much bigger than us. And that book really explores that through a bizarre premise, which is probably the other most memorable day in a good way, of my undergrad, which was that one day we went to class. Our teacher would show films by auteurs. It was an auteur cinema class. And he'd often have people, New York filmmakers, come in and show their own film and talk to us. It was a, a lovely class, but the last day he was just showing us Groundhog Day and we were very confused. We were like, okay, that, that's cool. It just wasn't really of the stripe of other things. And we knew it. You know, We'd seen it as kids. We, we, had, we loved it. It's a very memorable film. It's a very meaningful, almost Buddhist film. And halfway through the screening, we looked over and we saw that Bill Murray was sitting next to us. And so he just spent an hour with us just in this very small screening room, probably for 15 students, and just talked and was himself. And it was very, you know, he was an icon to us at the time. It was such a huge part of our childhood and our our sardonic personalities and everything. And so what I created in this novel, The Groundhog Forever, was the two film students who are exploring their own identities and their own relationship to art and their own relationship to each other. They're both queer they find themselves repeating that day where they meet Bill Murray and watch Groundhog Day over and over. That becomes their Groundhog Day. Because my friend and I who were in that class were like, what if this was our Groundhog Day? And for a long time we thought, well, we should pitch that. We should say, like, here's the sequel to Groundhog Day. Let's try to get Bill Murray involved. We know a guy who knows him, our teacher. But of course, that never happened. That never materialized. So I thought, oh, well, that's a novel. I can write that. I can create that. And I can also play with form so much because every page, every other page, I can restart the day and have a new adventure. And I think that's the only way I can get through almost a novel is to have something so, such a conceit that carries me, that inspires me and I have fun with, that feeds me as a writer. I'm surprised the film rights haven't been snapped up though. <laughs> oh, I think it's just way too late. He's, I guess we have all these ways to make people younger, but Bill Murray is so much older now. Yeah. I don't know. Could we what buy did it? he say about the film though? I mean, what was his take on it? 
I mean, I loved his take on the film. He was very blasé. I basically recreate our entire conversation in the book. So if you get the Groundhog Forever, I don't have it on me. But, you know, it has pretty much everything he said because, of course, I was steel trapping it in my head. Like, yeah. I know I'm going to remember everything he said. He really did talk about that he and Harold Ramis, the director, had sort of almost different ideas of like the purgatorial quality, like how many years he actually spends. You know, he was like, I sort of forget how many it was supposed to be. You know, was it a thousand years? You know, was it a hundred years? And I think in general, he he's very himself. He, he told a lot of jokes <laughs> and he got somebody's cell phone to call his brother to remember a joke. It was really like, instead of really talking about the film, he was creating a present experience for us, the students. And I, I just valued that. I thought that's just, I think that's something he always does. I mean, I know he's, he can be a problematic figure, but I think that it seems like many people have encountered him out in the world and he's always like trying to make the moment something extraordinary mm-hmm. and strange as a social person. And I think that that, and that happens in my novel in various ways. And my protagonists are inspired by that to carve out their own purgatory in a way that maybe benefits the world around them or electrifies others. Mm -hmm. Something I strive for as well. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, you said something that completely shocked me a little while ago, saying that you were a freshman at 9-11, which puts you about 20 years older than I thought you actually were. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm a boyish slip of a thing. But yeah, I know, I just turned 40. That's Um, extraordinary. Listeners, I have to tell you, he looks 20. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's on record. So you 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 wrote your your memoir then not at, at a preposterously young age. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, no. I, I don't think I would have been. In, there would be any way I could write a memoir of, of my childhood until I had at least a decade on it. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, tell us a, a little bit more about Sticker. Well, so Stick, Sticker was written on contract for for Bloomsbury's Object Lessons, which is a series that I have adored for many years. Where a writer, often an academic or an essayist, will explore just one object in a short book length form, and I've just loved because what I do is always so restless in relation to genre. And I find those books to be just really beautiful vehicles for different voices. So each one I would pick up from, you know, hood to waste or dust would be this totally different voice. But I would learn a lot about both the subject and the the writer Mm -hmm. through these books. So I thought, okay, that's a great thing for me to check in about. And I I started talking to one of the editors, Christopher Shaberg, who's a great guy. And um, I pitched uh, something that would deal with nostalgia and the era of like the 90s into the 2000s, like the idea of tangible media, and also my hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, because it had become a very global topic in a way. There was a this white supremacist rally and the terrorist killing of Heather Heyer was very like, it became a huge news story. And, and so Charlottesville was suddenly a signifier for the encroaching like evil of America in that moment. And so that was something I was talking to Christopher about, and I was talking about disc. I was thinking about a laser disc, a compact disc, and a DVD being like these physical avatars for for what I wanted to explore. And I had these three essays I had crafted for that. And he said, oh, I love this conversation, but we have someone doing a compact disc book already. Do you have any other ideas? And so I went back to like deeper and I said, oh, okay, what's the most tangible, memorable thing about my childhood? And Charles was like, oh, stickers. And so I decided, okay, I'll write a memoir that contains the beauty and tragedy and horror of my hometown, which was founded by Thomas Jefferson. So it's a very deeply problematic fucked up place but it's a place where um where violence and oppression is very much at the core of how it was founded but here i am centuries later and trying to find a way to see it and to honor it and to honor the people who live there in a time when they're being sort of becoming a synecdoche for a violence that came and attacked them because they were trying to make change trying to tear down confederate monuments or remove them from public spaces Mm. and so i thought okay well to contain all that i have to pick something that is unexpected And so I thought a sticker, I thought I will write 
20 micro essays. So it's 20 stickers and they inherently fail to contain or sum up or be authoritative about my town at all. And that's part of it. And I just, I know that the futility of, yeah, of authority and summing up and full thesis statements is, is just part of my practice. I know I'll never know exactly what I mean, mm-hmm. but I can grasp at it. I can hold on to it. I can let it come and go. And, and stickers were a perfect way to do that. So it's an unexpected book, but I, I loved writing it. And, and it's been extremely yeah. well received. Yeah. All right. On to this <laughs> book, which is extraordinary, Open Throat. On the front cover, it says, and indeed these are the opening lines, I've never eaten a person, but today I might. It's wonderful. Tell me, first of all, how this creature in real life crossed your your purview. Yeah. So the, the mountain lion designated P-22, the, the 22nd puma that the Park Service in Southern California had, had tracked, had collared and were tracking. This became a figure in my L.A. life because I had moved to the neighborhood Los Feliz, which is just below Griffith Park, so this expansive wilderness that juts out in the middle of separating Los Angeles from the San Fernando Valley. One of these pumas had crossed over from the Santa Monica mountain range, the 405, which is a massive freeway, so a huge undertaking and, and very rare and hadn't happened, and was just roaming alone in the Griffith Park range. And this happened almost exactly when I moved to the neighborhood. So we were contemporaries in that way. And I would always read new stories about and think about P-22. P-22 was found living under a house for a while. And that was the first time I was like, this is fascinating. <laughs> like the, so these people had this big cat, like this apex predator, just relaxing, living under their house for, I think, m- many months and, and didn't know because it's, you know, it's a nocturnal animal. It's potentially has a lot of things to eat. But I, I loved finding out that it had been there and just sort of started to feel haunted by the cat when I was out there. And um, I, I would push myself to hike into the hills to, to get up to the observatory, sort of the iconic place from Rebel Without a Cause, up into the caves in Beechwood Canyon, up toward the Hollywood sign. And I would always think, like, this big cat is somewhere nearby. There is a larger, almost like mythical beast around me. So it was always a presence in my time in L.A. And when I moved back to New York City right before the pandemic, I just, I was like, oh, well, processing everything I'd experienced in Los Angeles and all that Los Angeles was, which is, again, like anything I've written about, intangible, <laughs> unsummable, too large. And I heard a song by Nick Cave, and I've talked about this a lot, but I, uh, he has a song called Hollywood. And there's just a very short segment of the song in one verse where he mentions a cougar roaming the Hollywood Hills. And that just sparked this in me. I was like, oh, right, P-22. That's a voice for my expression of Los Angeles. And the next day I started writing this book, I just got into a space where I, I, could, I could feel feral. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to write very directly. You know, I don't want to write something like a tapestry or a wide, a wide shot of something. I want to be very much on the ground in nature, in what is chaotic and apocalyptic about Los Angeles and go from there. And so that was the act of beginning, and it just kept going from there. And yeah. that's why you write in the voice of this creature. I'm saying creature because we've used the word mountain lion also, cougar, I've heard the word puma associated with this. Exactly what kind of big cat are we talking about? Or doesn't that matter? It doesn't matter so much to me. But I love that I love that this is a cat. Yeah, so it's, it's a smaller big cat. It's like this, one of the smaller of the large cats, but it's an apex predator. And it, there's quite a few in the, in the Santa Monica Mountains. It's a North American animal, mostly. I think that um, 
What's unique is that it does have so many designations, and those those things have you know like Puma is a company that makes shoes. athletic wear and shoes, and like and then and like a cougar has double meanings as well, you know. And you know a lion, obviously a lion gives it this regal quality, keys it into the famous regular lion, you know. But they look more like a lioness. They have that smooth look. And P twenty two was photographed quite a bit by these nocturnal signal cameras, and also upon capture and other things. And so there was was an image in my head of the, this cat with the silhouetted against the Hollywood sign because that was a real photo that people shared. And this was a celebrity in Los Angeles. But I think because they're very, they're a little unassuming. They blend in. This is a cat that can hide, you know, in, in a dry climate in brush and and blend in with the, the natural dusty soil. There is like a, a shadowy nature of them. But I also love that they're sort of undefined. Yeah, people call them all kinds of different things. And in the book, there's a there's a community of unhoused people living in Griffith Park. And, and each each tent of this small community calls the lion something different. And that's part of how the lion is hearing about itself, mm. you know, is through humans and trying to understand, well, oh, what am I? You know, and it doesn't think it's that. It knows it's some feline, it, it, but its mother has a name for it that it can never express, you know, that isn't made of words a human can make. So, yeah. it's. I mean, it's so beautifully written, all from the point of view of this lion who is trying to survive, and it's really quite difficult for it to survive in this environment, which is drought-stricken at the time. And you talk a lot about that, and it is... The book is addressing so much through this creature. It's addressing drought. He hears people talking about scarcity and that becomes scare city. And there's so much for him, it, they, to be afraid of. Yeah. In that moment, I, I felt like the idea of scarcity is so large and so present, especially conversationally for my community in L.A., or, you know, quite a privileged community compared to the range of people um, in Los Angeles. But I think for the cat to mishear that and start designating it as a place, as scarcity, just felt so fitting to me. Because a cat can understand a, a space, and this space, right, is is dry, and there's less water, there's less animals, there's more danger of wildfire, which becomes very climactic. And both wildfire and drought were pretty were present in, in the era that I was living in Los Angeles. Climates keep shifting, but there was a time when, yeah, it was incredibly drought-stricken, and there were moments where I would walk outside and see the, the hill above me just blazing on fire. like It almost looked like a volcano because it was a patch of wildfire. And then the next day, ash was just sort of raining down on my car and in my little car park. And I, I just was, I was thinking, this is, this is new. You know? you know, again, having been in New York for September 11th, this was just this more like where also things rained down from the sky. And I was part of it. I was thinking, well, this, is, this seems much more normalized and strangely natural. And people, you know, don't really flinch at, at, a, at a minor earthquake, you know, and those would occur pretty regularly. And I would feel very like out of control in my space. And so, so I thought, well, the cat is experiencing these things much more viscerally and on this ground level. And it's, it has to do with its very survival. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, the, the way it tells us what it's hearing hikers say. So scarcity is one of them. It lives in a place called L.A., which is mm-hmm. E-double-L-A-Y. There are no capitals because, of course, he doesn't know what a capital is. And as you say, there's an earthquake and it's, it's how, how it reacts to all of this stuff. But it's about, I mean, how humans have encroached. It's a book with a message, I want to say. It's about the encroachment of humans into this space. It's about trying to survive. At one point, he interacts, as you said, with this small group of people that live in tents. Is he their protector? Is he afraid of them? I think that he um he does I don't think he feels afraid of this group of people. I think he feels I say they and and you know this is a sort of gender journey. So I'll say Hecate, which is what the cat begins being called. This is just for shorthand. So yeah. Hecate Hecate feels a kinship with this group of people because they also 
are getting by and living in this space. There's something about, you know, even just their, their scent, you know, they're not like perfumed or, and, and, and because they're inhabitants of the space, they seem like a natural part of the space. And I think that's, there's moments where they'll leave out a bucket of like chicken bones and Hecate will come at night and eat, suck on the chicken bones and have a little sustenance. Or there's a water pump that it feeds from. And I think that um, it also at one point brings money that it sees someone dropped because it knows the value. It's seen the value. It brings it to the camp. And so there is like a, there's an acknowledgement that they're both, both the people, the unhoused people living in the tents and also, and Hecate are, are living in, in a similar circumstance with a similar need mm. for just some of the basic care of the world. And I think also the the hikers, you know, become this sort of linguistic storm that Hecate is getting these concentrated moments of, of people hiking by and talking about all kinds of a range of things. Like their therapist. And yes. he, he wants a therapist <laughs> yes. that he can store somewhere and go and visit to help him. You, you're not sure if the therapist is going to be prey or... Uh, it's extraordinary. Yeah, therapist is something I want, says Hecate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, is is it prey? Apparently there's a lot of therapists in New York. You know, that's what Hecate has, has gleaned from human conversation. And, and oh, are they just running around like deer? Can I go and stalk them there? Do I need to go to New York to get a therapist? <laughs> I, I mean, I just like everything you do. As you say, it's it's impossible to, to characterize this, to pin it down, to say exactly what this book is, except to say, you have to read it. <laughs> Henry, it's a it's a fabulous book. It's getting amazing reviews at the moment. It is, as it says in the blurb, a cult classic. And I think it's extraordinary. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Open Throat is by Henry Hoke. It's published by Picador and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Tamsin Howard and Monica Lillis. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listener.